The only thing that just really popped to my head was that disruption is the stage upon which opportunity is set. And I think we have to recenter around that, you know, that out of disruption comes some of the greatest opportunities that we're going to experience or see. And that opportunity is not going to slap you in the face. Opportunity is going to be hidden in the depths of the challenges. And it's your job, you know, to mine those depths. Yeah. Right? It's, it's each and every one of ours obligations to go really deep in the pain uh, as leaders and how difficult it may be. Uh, recognizing that only deep in this pain and frustration are we going to find the best opportunities that are going to transform us and our businesses. Yep. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey telling the stories of leaders, founders, CEOs, and people making an impact through business investing and entrepreneurship. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas not often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you by emailing us at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again. Hey guys, it's Chris. Welcome to The Fort. I have Brian Perkins back with me for part two. Uh, Brian is the CEO of Navaria Group, a uh, highly successful aerospace business. He recently sold his company to KKR and is really in the front lines of what's going on in the aerospace airline industry. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So thank you again for joining me, Brian. Thank you, Chris. Glad to be here. Let's just get right into it. Um, kind of big, big question, but how is uh, the virus COVID-19 impacting your world and the industry that you operate in? Yeah, no, it's uh, obviously it's impacting uh, our industry in a, in a really big way. So our, our industry, uh, Novaria is a manufacturer of, you know, aerospace and defense products is, is really tied to two things. One, commercial air travel and two, defense spending. And obviously the commercial air travel piece of that is uh, taking the biggest hit right now uh, at levels we've not ever seen before. Um, just just by way of kind of getting some statistics out there, we have seen a 90% drop in revenue passenger kilometers or RPKs, which is kind of how the industry measures uh, the success or the the health of, of, of air travel. So we've seen a 90% drop in really the end use uh, because of the COVID-19 uh, crisis across the world. Um, we haven't seen uh, a year-over-year drop in RPKs since 2009, and I think it's important to like look not just at 2009, but you know the last two uh, drops prior to 2009 as well, which were 2001 post 9/11 and 1991. So, really, only three times since 1990 have RPKs dropped year over year. And when you look at those drops and the magnitude of what was going on in the world, you know, you were seeing kind of year over year declines in RPKs of two or 3%, uh, sometimes 1%. Uh, this year, uh, we fully anticipate that RPKs will probably drop something like 35 to 40%. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And that's, and, and so when, when you're talking about how dramatic, the world has changed and there, there is no comparison. There is nothing to parallel this type of, uh, of drop. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's very real and it's, and it's, uh, changing daily. Right. Yeah. What was the biggest 
uh, for like 9-11, which most people can kind of refer to, what was the drop in 9-11? Yeah, so year over year, um, 2000 to 2001, we saw a 1% decline, um, which which is significant because, you know, as GDPs, you know, rise, uh, you know, to, to see a drop in, in air travel is, is pretty significant. So typically we see increases of 3 or 4%. Uh, it's very much tied to GDP, but in 2001, you know, we, we saw this, you know, one to 2% decline. This, what we're seeing today is catastrophic compared to, compared to that. So, uh, people aren't traveling. Airlines have laid off thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Um, I've seen pictures of just, uh, fields of just commercial jets, just sitting idle. Mm-hmm. So w- how does this impact wh- what's an airline thinking right now? And what are some kind of key points on like just things like what does it cost every day that the commercial jet isn't running? Yeah, yeah I think it varies by airline, right? So uh, the, the the thing that RPKs is, is really uh, about is load, right? And people have really pivoted and the airlines have pivoted from uh, really even looking at load factors to talking about the number of flights that they have that they have going. Uh, United Airlines, you know, for example, has got 95% of its international schedule for April. Uh, Singapore Airlines is cutting 96% of its capacity until the end of April, grounding 138 out of its 147 aircraft. So, yes, we have a ton of airplanes that are sitting on tarmacs throughout the world. Um, when you get to the cost of, of parking an aircraft, it really depends on whether that aircraft is leased or whether it's owned. Um, when you're talking about the cost of an aircraft sitting idle, it's nothing compared to the cost of that aircraft uh, not being flown, right? right? Not achieving the revenue. So I think the carrying cost of aircraft sitting on the ground is an airline's least, uh, you know, it's at least of its worries, right? Yep. The issue is the fact that, hey, we own this asset. Is the asset fully depreciated? Are we leasing the asset? Uh, and then you're, you're trying to figure out how do we get that asset, you know, deployed to to do what it was, you know, made to do, which is generate revenue. Yep. So, uh, you know, I, I think the, 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 the best case scenario <laughs> that we're talking about is that the world's going to recover. You know, in six to 10, 12 months, I, I, I think that recovery could be a little bit longer. But, you know, the the, the lo- looming question is, you know, what's going to change and how are behaviors going to change of the consumer uh, relative to global air travel yep. uh, in the future when we bounce back out of, out of this crisis? So just getting into like just a quick data points for, for airlines. So they have all their jets sitting these airlines put in orders for new jets 10 years in advance or six years in advance. And I'm assuming they're coming due on like, it's time to pay for planes that are, that are ready for you. Mm -hmm. Obviously they're just buying new planes to have those sit. Mm -hmm. Are people able to cancel their orders? Are they still buying them? Like what's happening in the transaction world for new jets? Yeah. I think it's a little bit early to to kind of call the ball on everything that's happening, but I think you know, people are pretty aware that there are definitely going to be order cancellations. There are going to be deferrals. Uh, I think, you know, it really depends on the airline and, and exactly what the needs of that specific airline are, as well as the current fleet. I think I think we have to, you know, look at, you know, what the airlines own and if it's leasing or owns, you know, uh, if it's leasing the product. So, you know, when we look at kind of the global air, aircraft market, you know, we have over about 4,000 aircraft in, in place today globally that are between 18 and 24 years old, which 
I think this this uh, that that's kind of in that retirement area for an aircraft, right? The assets are really good up until that point, and then they start to be parted out. They start to be, you know, uh, repurposed for uh, for the aftermarket. And so I think what we're going to see is that this crisis will bring this tsunami of eighteen to twenty four year old aircraft forward, and the thing that'll get impacted the most, and and you know, uh, this is what will change kind of the aerospace business model is that those retirements will create an abundance of parts uh, for the aftermarket. So, you know, businesses who relied on a razor, razor blade model, meaning we're going to kind of give our products up for production, we're going to make our money in the spare parts world uh, are going to be, you know, impacted the most. Yep. Uh, so I think, I think when we look at aerospace, we have to kind of separate OEM production versus aftermarket. And when we look at what's going to really impact the aftermarket is, is what will be impacted. I think that we're going to find creative ways and, and, and the OEMs will find creative ways. The Boeings and Airbuses will find creative ways to continue to sell aircraft, probably not at, you know, the clip that we were doing it in 2019 or 2018 for at least a, a period of time. But the aftermarket is going to be the thing that's going to be, you know, really crushed yep. uh, by by this due to the you know availability of uh, of aircraft for for aftermarket repurposing. Has have you seen any declines in the defense area where it's a totally different ball game? No, I, I, it's it's interesting, and, and that's that's the that's the part of aerospace and defense that we we really like is is when you have. Uh, both commercial aircraft uh, orders, you know, in abundance and defense spending in abundance, you have this kind of nice uh, dual cycle going on. So uh, when you, when you don't have those uh, in tandem, you typically see defense spending spiking when commercial aerospace is down. And I think we're, we're you know, we're in the early innings of that. Yeah. You know, the Trump administration obviously uh, was coming out of eight years of uh, depressed military spending under the Obama administration. And so I think uh, as, as you know, the stimulus uh, comes out around COVID, as, as people kind of, you know, just kind of naturally look at the fleets of aircraft and ships and, you know, other defense products that are out there, there will be more uh, dollars that are going to be allocated to defense spending. So I think, you know, that is actually a bright spot um, in, in our industry. And uh, we, we started to see, you know, some uptick in that probably a couple years ago, but I, I fully expect that, you uh, you know, people are going to be focused on that, and the government wisely will be focused on that to uh, bridge, you know, some of the knowledge, you know, workers in the aerospace and defense uh, sector to ensure that you know we're, there's not a brain drain that takes takes place during this downturn. Yep. And just to uh, reframe what Navaria does, Navaria makes thousands of parts for aircraft. That's right. Yeah, we 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 do everything from nuts, bolts, uh, pins, rivets. Uh, wing skins, tubes, brackets that hold, uh, you know, products on the the external of the aircraft engine. So uh, really, when it comes to aerospace hardware, we, we pretty much touch just about everything. Uh, and um, we virtually are on every platform that's out there in the world. And what have you seen in the last 30 days with regards to those parts that you're making, are you being told to make less of them? Are you being told to stop? It, it varies by customer and platform. So when you look at your exposures in, in, a, in a business like ours, we have to you know fully understand what the end use items are. So 
you know, we're in a unique situation in that, uh, you know, COVID-19 was, uh, was, you know, the aftermath of the 737 MAX being grounded for, you know, almost a year. So we, we were already, you know, in kind of a, a downturn on, you know, single aisle commercial aerospace, North American products that were ultimately ending up at, at Boeing for the 737. Uh, our exposure to that program is is decent, but it's not an overexposure. Right. Uh, so we were seeing we were seeing people in the supply chain who were overexposed to that you know program already struggling. Yep. You know, people like Spirit uh, Aerosystems in Wichita, Kansas, that has well over fifty percent of its revenues derived you know from the fuselage of that aircraft. Um, they were they were you know really hit hard you know before this you know occurred. So I, I think um, you know. Back to your question, uh, you know, what are we seeing from customers right now? I, I think we're we're in the early innings of 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 what uh, what they're telling us. Yep. Um, we've seen customers um, really stop taking orders if if their factories are shut down due to the pandemic. Right. So nobody's receiving parts uh, that can't use or make 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 something with those parts. Uh, so that's that's kind of gate one as far as. Longer term demand and pushouts. I think we're starting to see, you know, some trickle down from some of the OEMs modifying their schedules. We are typically, and this is what I, what I kind of tell people in our business. We are we're kind of a three to six month lag yep. on macroeconomic impacts. This is kind of what we saw in two thousand nine. So when we have work in process or WIP, uh, it generally you know can move through the factory and get to the customers. So you know our revenues for February and March. We're actually, you know, pretty decent relative to what we had planned. Um, but when we looked at April, May, June, I think those are going to be the things that are going to be moving targets relative yeah. to what's at our factories and what the customers will take. We're going to talk about, I want to talk more about just how you're operating the business in this environment. But before we get there, uh, I want to take us through a positive note. Brian sold his business to KKR on January 28th, which is also my birthday. That wow. was the birthday present. That, that <laughs> happy, bir me. happy birthday. And I got to follow that journey and in, in what happened there. And so wanted to just talk about kind of what that was like, and then we'll get back to how being a partner with KKR kind of going into this uh, is going to be wind at your back and, sure. and what you're seeing. So uh, when did you decide to sell your business and why? Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, selling a business is, is you don't wake up one day and say, oh, it's for sale and, you know, we're selling. I think there were a combination of things. Our business had grown uh, tremendously uh, over, you know, a five, six year period. Uh, we had a set of investors who uh, had been amazing and with us for a very long time. You know, when we looked at allocations relative to, you know, their portfolios, you know, they had a significant chunk of, uh, liquidity that was tied up with uh, with with our business, and so when 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 thinking about where Novaria was heading, uh, our ability to double, triple, quadruple the size of the business, you know, going forward, you know, it became a natural conversation around the board uh, room, you know, through a series of board meetings around you know finding that next home for Novaria. So I think we really started in earnest talking uh, prior to the summer of last year about doing something with the business. Uh, we were in a fortunate uh, situation where our investors didn't have to sell yeah. uh, our business, and we have a management team that's been with the business for a very long time. So we wanted to be really thoughtful about you know where to go with the business, and uh, we were being approached 
you know, as as a business that people wanted to invest in, people wanted to to, to buy and do a variety of um, you know things, you know, with our business. Uh, so we we decided to listen, you know, to some people who uh, had that interest. And what we found were, you know, a few different parties uh, that became really compelling opportunities for us to to uh, engage with. And KKR absolutely was the right uh, partner for us coming out of that. It was uh, pretty apparent and de- deal with them. Yep. Uh, so you so you get kind of board approval. Uh, you're going to move forward. Uh, how did you did you already have an investment banker in mind or like how did you pick who was going to kind of lead this charge for you? Yeah, I mean, investment bankers um, specialize in different areas, and there are definitely a few great ones in uh, the aerospace and defense world. Um, we, you know, picked an investment bank that um, you know we trusted had you know some success, uh, just to really shepherd those conversations. Uh, again, this was a very fast process, and you know, I, I, I how fast? Yeah, you know, less than a month. Um, less than a month from when you like went to the public and said, we're selling our business to picking a buyer. Yeah. We didn't even go to the public and say we're selling it. We just said, Hey, you know, we've got some interest, uh, who wants to talk. And then, you know, in a month we were, we were done. How many people did you talk to? Maybe, you know, half dozen handful. Yeah. Um, that they strategically selected. Yeah. Just, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty easy when you have a business that, uh, gets bought as opposed to a business that you have to sell. Yep. Right, and I and I always tell people like our business is a business that g- gets bought. Yep, and and I think there's a lot of factors, you know, to that. I mean, the fact that you know our management team stays with the business, continues to invest with the business, uh, creates a high degree of alignment with the the ownership that that we have today, and um, you know works itself out, you know, really well. So um, we're absolutely in the right place, at the right time. You know, obviously the world's, you know, in a different spot right now, but, you know, this isn't, this isn't a one or two year play for uh, anybody. This is a very long-term, long cycle investment that KKR and our management team are being really thoughtful about. Yep. To give listeners just another, uh, just tidbit, you had, uh, the way Navaria operates, uh, I always tell Brian, it's similar to what happens up in Omaha at Berkshire, but Navaria is home base and they have acquired, is it 14 companies? Yeah, now? right about there. 14 yeah. businesses, the owners and ownership or managers continue to run their business and their culture and everything rolls up to uh, Navaria, which is in Fort Worth. So it's been fascinating to watch. So you pick KKR uh, to sell. That closes uh, the end of January. Mm-hmm. So... How does having KKR as a partner going into this make your world uh, much more strategic and agile compared to, which were amazing investors, but family offices that, you know, maybe weren't looking to continue growing and buying? Like, what's KKR going to do for you? Yeah, no, I, th- I think first and foremost, I think there's a high cultural alignment um, with with KKR. They are forward thinking about employee engagement. Uh, that was probably the, the the single biggest attractive thing that I found out during the, that process was how, you know, deeply they think about ownership uh, throughout the company. So uh, when, when KKR acquired us, uh, every employee became an owner and they do that through zero cost options. Their big belief is that a highly engaged workforce will create better results uh, for everybody. And that was great to see in, in in the world of private equity. And I think it's a differentiator and it's going to be a game changer that is, 
going to be uh, adopted or or imitated as time goes on. I think yeah. the world has has changed. I think they were just they were early, you know, to the game. Yep, they're w- incredibly well resourced. I mean, you alluded to it. The you know just the fact that we have a strong balance sheet, we have a great liquidity position, uh, enables us to ride through you know some of these some of these very difficult times. Uh, so I think uh, when I look at how we're positioned uh, relative to kind of the peer group in aerospace and defense, I think we're absolutely at the top. So th- that was that was just you know something you know really fortunate for uh, for our business, and uh, it's great to have partners like them. Uh, th- there's just a, a high degree of alignment too around recognizing that it's all about the team and the people. There's just a real you know, emphasis and focus on getting the right uh, people on the bus. They continue to be thoughtful uh, around the diversity and exposure uh, of our business to the market, just just like we are. Yep. Like we we've we we purposely built our business over time uh, to weather storms like this, um, and we're we're really living why we did that. And you know the the ability to leverage our data um, and just just become more proficient and um, you know operationally and financially and thoughtfully about just managing our business is um, you know we're already starting to see the benefits of that. So you know if you're at ask me you know what what the strategy is you know for the next couple of years as we manage through this. Yeah. I mean it's no different than it was you know three months ago. You know number one we're going to weaponize operations, meaning we're going to become the most operationally efficient business that we possibly can during this time. We have lean practitioners in our business trying to uh, figure out the most creative ways to one piece flow product through our factories to reduce working capital to create an efficient engine that customers are going to buy from. Uh, we're going to continue to acquire businesses, but we're going to acquire the right exposures and the right products that fit our strategy. So there's, there really is no change in our M and A strategy. Uh, we're just going to, you know, be more thoughtful and tight about it because I think we can be. Yeah. And then I think, you know, we're going to just have to be ready for the next upturn. Yep. So if we do number one and number two, uh, we are going to be really well positioned to come out of, uh, of this COVID situation, uh, and, you know, take control of our destiny, which I think any business should be, you know, thinking about how they can do that. And we're fortunate enough to, you know, be resourced to do that. Yep. God, I learned so much from you every time we chat. How are you getting better at uh, getting, like when KKR comes in and, and you talk about better data and then you talk about getting leaner. So first question is just, uh, what do they provide that allows you to build a better, robust system for uh, data? Is it software? Is it people? Is it both? Yeah, I think it's um, experience. Right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, this is a, a firm of, of, of people who are um, just really well respected and have a respect, a healthy respect for what you do as a business. And you know, I, I think I don't think this is their motto, but I think they recognize that doing business the right way is always in vogue, uh-huh. right? Number one, number two, quality is always profitable, right? Right, and quality is still profitable. Yeah. And, and I tell that to my folks: like, if if we continue to make good products, we will continue to be profitable. And strategy is long term, uh, but don't don't waste a good crisis. Yep. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, I think. Those are kind of some some pillars, and and what they provide relative to that backdrop is access to people, access to resources. To you know, I'm, I'm you know whether it's a person who's uh, been engaged in defense contracting for years, or 
uh, a person who has, you know, run operations and set up 200 different, um, you know, lean cells within plants, um, you know, having access to people that advise and, you know, help guide uh, is something that, you know, a good partner uh, provides and, and they do. So I, I think that's, um, you know, that's uh, part of part of the secret sauce that's you know, going to help, you know, businesses like ours uh, get, get even better. On the lean side and the operation side, uh, what is a like a you mentioned lean cell? You mentioned people that are hired just to provide lean solutions. Like what what is their life? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean you you know the a typical or like a, a legacy construct of, of manufacturing is to produce products in batch quantities, right? So um, you know someone will decide how oh, an efficient quantity for us to produce is a thousand pieces and you'll have you know seven different operations associated with making that part and so you'll take a thousand and you'll do operation one and then you'll move that thousand pieces to operation two operation two will do you know that so on and so forth yeah in in you know and this is really kind of a shorthand way in in, in a lean environment you are not uh, doing that batch, you know, processing or, or kind of batch manufacturing, you are doing one piece flow where you're immediately taking a product from operation one, as soon as that piece is done and moving it to operation two, and you're creating this single piece flow, which, you know, creates for a much more efficient, um, you know, uh, operation, it reduces lead time, it reduces working capital. Um, and this is really what the Japanese, you know, um, coined with the Toyota production system. And, you know, to this day, you know, people in the U.S. have failed to kind of adopt this uh, across the board. I mean, some companies do it incredibly well. Uh, Danaher is a great example for, uh, you know, a, a large diversified industrial that has, you know, taken this and really run with it. And, and the results have, uh, have shown. But culturally, um, the U.S. is... Just a, a little bit different than than um, other you know cultures like Japan, who is is very focused on on lean manufacturing. And you know that's um, that's part of our journey is to to become more uh, you know lean uh, manufacturing focused. What about their culture makes them? What about what's the difference in culture that would? Uh, it's not easy to just copy what Japan does. Yeah, it's. I think it's an adherence to daily discipline, and you know just. Um, just a really a discipline, yep. you know, factor. Yep. Um, you know, that's, that's what it comes down to. So you said uh, Navaria is open for business, meaning we are buying companies. What will the M&A landscape look like? Obviously, there's going to be some opportunities. One thing you've always talked about, you want to buy a great company that has great ownership. Like, how are you thinking about M&A right now? Uh, obviously, you're super well capitalized. You have funding available. Are there targets you already had? Are there new targets that you may have written off as we'll probably never get that that now come back into the equation? Or yeah, no, I, I think M and A is um, it's definitely a, a tool that our business uses to grow, and it's one that we're going to continue to to use. Just because a, a downturn occurs doesn't mean oh everything's all of a sudden just on sale. Um, I think you know we're we're being thoughtful around. Um, what the right time is to approach, you know, different businesses, uh, because you know we're, we're not predatory right. at all. I mean, that you, we want to make sure that uh, we're partnering with businesses, you know, create win-win situations. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and I think uh, you know during this during this cycle, 
you know, we are going to have to think about, you know, debt and equity profiles a little bit differently. So we're probably going to have to, you know, equitize businesses appropriately, you know, and, and, and figure out exactly the right, the right structures to, um, to, to, to make a purchase. Yep. But we, the, the businesses that we wanted two years ago are the same businesses that we want today. Yep. Our strategy has not changed. And I think, you know, when people ask me ab- about this at conferences and, and the like, I, I think the important thing is don't get distracted by, you know, near term, you know, opportunities that are masquerading themselves as, you know, great deals. Right. So just because something's 80% off sticker price doesn't necessarily mean that that's a great business for you to buy. And I, and, and I think that during downturns, you know, people who are opportunistic can lose their strategy. Right. So, you know, yes, just because that's a great deal doesn't necessarily mean that it fits with Novaria's strategy. If it's a great deal, you know, maybe somebody else can buy it, but, you know, probably not us. Um, You know, Within our category, there may be, you know, great deals or things that we think are uniquely positioned for us to do, and we're gonna we're gonna do those. Yep. Uh, but our biggest, you know, challenge will on the M and A side will to be not being distracted by a lot of other things that are out there. Yep. How much, uh, you know, assuming the deals were to be made, how how many deals are you gonna do in total total volume? How much money could you be investing? Yeah, I mean, I look, I, I think I think it's. Um, it's pretty wide open. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we're again in the early innings of, of trying to understand how, uh, this downturn is going to impact the M and a environment. Um, if we look to 2009, if we look to nine 11, um, it definitely has an impact on the environment. I think, you know, this, uh, situation that we're in, you know, we still need to kind of understand it. We are, actively, you know, pursuing opportunities that we were prior to this downturn. We are actively in discussions with owners. These are great businesses that will be great additions to Novaria. Um, If we all of a sudden said, no, we're going to push pause on these and focus on, you know, bottom of the barrel pricing and distressed opportunities, that, that that would take us into a direction that, you know, really isn't uniquely ours. Yep. Um, you know, there may be, a variety of opportunities that uh, kind of fit uh, that that type of profile, but they have to fit our business. Yep. And if they don't fit our business, we are not going to do them. Uh, just another uh, thing that I was going to mention earlier, but you started this company in 09 at the, is it 09 or 2000? Yeah, 2009 was when I started uh, really the thesis around it. Yeah. You know, it took me a couple of years to, you know, line up funding and investors and kind of get the thesis, you know, kind of to an execution point. But really, it was March of 2009. Yeah. Almost eerie. I mean, it was almost like everything bad happens in March. Yeah. Maybe we should just like skip to, <laughs> skip to April from now on. But yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was March of 2009. I'm sitting at... Parker Hannafin, Fortune 500 company, um, who has made a strategic decision to not do M&A during the financial crisis to shore up liquidity, keep its credit ratings, all the right things for a large company to do. Um, but I, I, I dislike the inflexibility of that. Yeah. And so are you seeing just kind of the, uh, obviously you were optimistic in 09 and you were uh, looking at buying several companies uh that you would like back then, are you seeing that same kind of mentality again, that 09, 2010 mentality from a standpoint of uh, sellers that that maybe are more interested in selling now than they were? Again, not 
because they're not a great business, but a lot of these are family-run companies that have been around forever. Um, has the tone among sellers kind of changed again and you feel like you're back in 09 and 2010? No, I mean, there, there's a little bit of parallel to 2009, 2010. I think it's going to be dramatically different because uh, the way that the financial crisis impacted the world uh, is is different than uh, the way that uh, this pandemic is is impacting the world. I think consumer behaviors are going to change. Will they change long term? I don't know. My horizon is is you know I perpetually have a ten year horizon. Yep. Like I, you know it's just a rolling ten year horizon, and I think good people in aerospace that's kind of the world that they live in that's the world they think about they kind of perpetually are in 10 year cycles so i think owners of businesses that have been around they they understand hey yeah this is going to be you know painful and you know it's going to have to be managed through but i think they think about the world in kind of these you know rolling 10 year chunks and you know businesses that are great that don't have to do anything they're not going to do anything they're just going to continue to you know be managed and run and those may be great businesses for us to buy and just because we're buying them you know during a period of disruption doesn't mean that we're you know doing something because it's opportunistic for sure it just may be a great time for us to partner with the right businesses yep and and that's that's kind of how i view it it's like i'm going to have this conversation with an owner regardless of whether it's 2018 whether it's you know 2021 or 2026 yep it's can we get further faster together as a combined business and i think that's the the new playbook for novari is to recognize that yeah you may, you may be a great business we may be a great business but we may be really really good together yep and and so that's kind of the the the, the point and uh, and picture, you know, that I'm, I'm painting for myself and, and the business. If I'm a seller that you've been talking to for a while, and this is, has nothing to do with the period of time we're in. And I say, you know, I'm ready to sell and you say, great. And we agree. How long does it take me to actually sell my business to you? Well, we've, we've, we've done it in weeks. Uh, we've, you know, done it at uh, a seller's pace. You know, there may be, you know, different, uh, situations impacting a seller that you know they want to draw the process out for six or seven or eight months yeah um and there may be businesses that uh, aren't as prepared you know to um you know package data and you know run a run through the diligence process so i would say if if a seller is ready uh, and has their data ready you know we can do something very quickly yep. if uh if not then you know we'll, we'll be flexible i think i think that's Part of the differentiation that our, our that our business provides is, you know, the ability to do things fast or, you know, at someone else's pace. Yep. We talked about the 737 Max, which was Boeing's deal that kind of happened before this. Is that now not as big of a deal as it was because now there's just problems everywhere? <laughs> no, I think I think it's still a big deal. I just think it's uh, it's not grabbing. Uh, the front page of the newspaper right. quite like it was. Um, it's it's absolutely an important program. It has caused an immense amount of financial distress, uh, not only on Boeing, but on the airlines, uh, on the supply chain. And nobody wants to get that plane back up in the air more than Boeing and its supply chain and the airlines. Yep. Uh, so I think, I think, you know, there's about 800 suppliers that supply into the 737. There's an immense amount of WIP that's still on hand or that work in process that I referred to earlier uh, that exists for the MAX. So, you know, if that plane comes, uh, knock on wood, 
you know, back into service in the May, June, July timeframe, I think they will be able to start producing them. But again, the backdrop of this whole pandemic is is kind of throwing another asterisk. We've got like three asterisks on everything, you know, yep. um, that, that can kind of create some interdependence on what's going on in the world. But, you know, the 737 is kind of what everybody was talking about. I think from an industry perspective with China and global air travel, the thing that everybody's kind of missing are the larger transport planes. Yep. Uh, so so I'm, I'm actually kind of taking an eye to trying to understand what will happen with the dual aisle programs such as the 787 or the A350. You know, are we going to see kind of rate dramatically drop on those? You know, a lot of those programs are really dependent on international travel, particularly to Asia. So everybody's kind of been focused on this, you know, North American single aisle matter when I think there are some other things in the backdrop we're going to, you know, have to keep our eye on. And when you say single double aisle, literally the aisles on a plane when you get on. So the double aisle offers often three sets of seats. That's right. Yeah. Center. Left, yeah. Left, center, right. These are the programs that if you're doing a uh, trip from Los Angeles to Singapore, you're on a you're on on one of these you know long haul carriers. You know, I think the other thing you know when it comes to the dual aisle scenario is is you know trying to understand whether or not China's GDP figures are are really reflecting reality. Yep. Um, because again, I, I talked a little bit about how GDP and RPKs are typically correlated. Yep. Well, so are so are car, car sales, right? Yep. So we're seeing some numbers that just don't correlate. When you look at RPKs, when you look at car sales out of China, pretty low. When you hear them talk about GDP, pretty high. So <laughs> I, I'm trying I'm trying to understand why there's no correlation, and you know we'll, we'll kind of figure that out over time. But you know, right now there's some 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 differing information that's coming out of uh, out of our friends in, in yeah, China. Yep. Won't won't even make a comment. The the numbers are what China is going to put out there for <laughs> now. Right. Um right. when you think about just even just kind of this paradigm shift and consumer behavior and and all of this uh how people could come out of this differently and how they think about the world. Um and you you look at like Zoom video conferencing has gone from, I think I read something crazy, like 20 million daily active users to 300 million in a matter of three weeks. Right. Like my kids know how to use Zoom, right? Yep. It's like pretty amazing. And, you know, teachers are teaching their kids through Zoom. We're having business meetings through Zoom. Are a lot of people going to figure out through this that like, I don't maybe need to fly all the damn time and I can get a lot done through a Zoom call? Or is there just some uh, travel that you see is just imminent no matter the situation? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a question of whether or not we're going to become more of an isolationistic world uh, in the aerospace and defense, you know, environment. I think it's a it's a it's a good question. I don't I don't have the answer yeah. for it, but I, I I do think that humans need you know personal interaction. We are social beings and social creatures. I think people, you know, in in, in the younger generations that that are that are coming up are still going to appreciate and fall in love with doing activities um, more so than uh, spending money on material possessions um, and assets. I I I, I think. I think the question is how fast is this recovered? You know, are people scared to sit next to each other, you know, in a tube? I mean, look, I'm, I'm not buying stock in Amtrak, right? right. I'm, I'm not, I'm not thinking that, you know, people are fundamentally going to change, 
um, you know, their behaviors. I do think there are some some spikes of social issues around aerospace that uh, have have you know res- you know become uh, you know come to light as a result of some environmental movements, such as um, we see over in Europe. There's uh, quite you know flight shaming is in vogue. So people are, you know, shaming people who are flying because, you know, that's bad for the environment. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's always going to be a reason to put something out that dismisses what somebody, somebody else is doing and, and the behavior. Yeah. Um, but I think there's only so long that people will go hosting meetings via, via Zoom. I think nobody has tracked the long-term productivity of doing virtual work. Yep. Okay. I mean, the, yep. it, it, when you cannot tell me that people are being as productive in March of 2020, uh, using zoom as they will be in March of 2021 when they're not using them. I, I, I don't buy it. Yep. So I think air travel will be strong. I think it will take us a little while to recover, but again, I'm not buying stock in, you know, commercial railroads or even auto companies. For sure. With regards to, I kind of have thought through this whole thing, even for myself is like, I envision myself standing there and there's these, these rings around me and each ring gets a little bigger. And in the first ring is like all my essentials. Mm-hmm. I'm immediately going to start spending on all my essentials again. Then the next ring is like, I'm definitely going to buy some stuff for my house because the house is be- households become more in focus right now. The next mm-hmm. ring is like, I'm going to start traveling again. The next ring, and then the final ring is like the stuff I definitely don't need, just kind of <laughs> blowing money to whatever. <laughs> That's going to be the last to come back. And how I relate that to the aviation world is like the private aviation. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, air, uh, private air has been at an all-time high, people spending lots and lots of money on on private air, do you have any just kind of thought? Is that the the last to come back? Yeah, private air travels. Uh, it, it is different than than commercial air travel. Um, the, the biggest thing that impacts private air travel are, are oil oil shocks, right? I mean, when you look at um, the correlation of like a Cessna's orders to um, GDP or anything, it's really more correlated to oil shocks. So when you have cheap oil, I, I still think you're going to have some people flying private. I yeah. think it'll be it'll be okay. I think you have to you have to also and again this is kind of my mind being an aerospace practitioner. I, I completely segregate uh, the private aviation world into kind of three buckets. Right yeah. at, at the lower end is general aviation, uh, which is completely discretionary. It's for fun. It's people flying you know Cessna one seventy twos on the weekend. It's you know your uncle that has a pilot's license doing his thing. Uh, kind of in the middle are, you know, smaller, uh, more affordable, if there is such a thing as an affordable private jet. You know, so these are kind of like the Cessnas and the King Airs of the world. And then at the upper end, you have, you know, really miniature commercial transports like a Gulfstream or a Dassault Falcon or something like that. Yep. I think at the very top end of that, you, you're going to always see a pretty insulated uh, market, you know, yeah. people who are going to fly those are going to fly those, and and you know, there's good reasons for them to do so. Uh, the middle of that market is what's really you know susceptible to the oil shocks, uh, and then kind of lower end of the market is what people are going to stop doing on the weekends because that just takes you know that that extra money yeah. and you know you know puts it to the side. So I think the the high end of the market is going to stay there. Private travel may become. A, you know, more in vogue, but again, that's, that's the double-edged sword, uh, with, you know, people vilifying 
private air travel. In 2009, we saw people vilifying uh, private air travel because it was related to or was seen uh, as a parallel to um, financial institutions that were doing it with large S. Yeah. I think today there's going to be, you know, a vilification around the environment. Yep. Um, so I think it's different different reasons, but, you know, it's, it's a market we got to kind of you know, keep our eye on. For sure. You know, times like this, the the most some of the greatest companies in the world come out of a downturn. Is there anything like innovation or opportunity within aviation that one you were hoping to see come, but maybe it might come quicker, or things that that need to happen in the next couple of years to make the aviation business uh, stronger, aer- aerospace business stronger? Yeah, I was I was actually reflecting again. The more you reflect on the past, the kind of more parallels you find to to your present. So um, I was I was reflecting on this kind of thought about innovation and how it will change. Uh, I, I actually sat on an FAA-funded consortium back in 2005, 2006 called ACER, which stands for uh, Aircraft Cabin Enviro- Environmental Research uh, Consortium. And the whole purpose of that uh, consortium was to uh, look at innovation and ways to improve uh, the air inside a cabin, right? And, and of course, back then we were talking about potential releases of sarin gas and you know how to protect against dirty bombs because we were coming off the heels of 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 9-11 you know if i play that forward people are going to be having the same conversations around well how do we protect passengers against covid right how do we protect you know the next um you know unforeseen you know things so you know back then i was i was actually trying to proliferate technology related to nuclear biological and chemical filtration which basically would you know, filter out NBC type materials like sarin gas and different viruses and things like that. I think we're going to see those types of discussions happening again going forward. You know, I'm a huge, you know, black swan theory guy. Uh, There's no doubt this is a black swan. I think the biggest element that people forget about black swans is that something fundamentally will change going forward. Uh, That's kind of a characteristic. And and that's the big unknown is what's going to change going forward, what kind of regulations, what kind of technology is going to be inserted. So when I think about technology innovation in our space, I think there's going to be some bigger discussions around, you know, cabin filtration. I think people are going to be more health conscious about anything that they do. Again, airplanes are really, really safe places. I mean, you're much, <laughs> much safer in an aircraft than you are in your car. Um, yes, you're you're going to be sitting next to a lot of people, but you know, that's, that's part of the reality of life. So I, I think the more that we can get the, the flying public comfortable with, uh, the, the environment, uh, within the fuselage, uh, the faster and better we're going to recover. So do you have any, in this isn't even industry related, do you have any, uh, opinion on like what piece of news needs to come out for people to feel comfortable doing that again? Or is it just a slow process of, you know, like your brother goes on a plane and calls you and says, Hey, I just took a plane ride and it was great. You should start flying again. Yeah. I think, I think time heals a lot of, a lot of things. I think people just have to naturally get more comfortable with where, uh, where they were. Um, again, you know, just seeing, you know, how aircraft are designed, and put together firsthand it's it's an amazing process to go through and, and a process to witness and you realize just how advanced these machines are uh i think people have to fly you know fall in love with living again 
I mean, yeah. if they fall in love with living again, they're going to travel yep. and they're going to travel the way that we did, you know, for the last five, 10 years. And we're going to get incrementally better and improve those airplanes, you know, accordingly. There are the smartest minds in the world that are, you know, up in Seattle uh, and in Toulouse, France, working on ways to, you know, keep people safe and improve uh, improve the air aircraft. So people just really need to understand uh, that um, that's an ongoing activity. I don't think there's any magic, you know, bullet or, you know, uh, situation where, you know, a politician comes out and says, we are safe now. I mean, yeah. I, th I think there will be that kind of event for the, for the max, which is recertification for the 737. But for the flying public, I think we just have to get on the other side of this and get back to living. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I mean, people are yearning to see their families and travel and, you know, get out of their house. And they're probably more likely they're, they're not missing the extra, you know, money they could have spent to get the nicer car, but they are missing, you know, s traveling to wherever made them happy. And so that'll be something that comes back way before the, the, the finer luxuries, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, the, the thought on people that are, you know, self quarantining or in shelter in place is, you know, it's, it's, it's going across their minds that, Hey, as soon as this, you know, is over, I'm, 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 I'm taking a vacation yeah. somewhere. I'm getting out of here, <laughs> you know, whether they drive or where they fly, I mean, they're, they're, they're still going to, they're still going to get out. So, yep. um, you know, we gotta, we gotta think about life on the other side. You recently spoke at a, a, oh, and you mentioned just how incredible it is that these plans are made. Brian, uh, was gracious enough at a YPO deal to let us uh, have a, a peek inside of a Boeing factory in Charleston, South Carolina. And this was all before the 737 MAX news. It is an absolute miracle on the planet that Boeing and companies like this exist. When you see the inside of one of these factories and the level of detail and importance and process, it is literally a miracle of God that these companies exist. And oh. it's a shame that you read it in the news you know, that they're, you know, Boeing, some dumb company that's making planes and they make a, you know, mistake, you see the other side of it and it truly is like an act of God. Mm -hmm. um, you won an aerospace industry award at the end of last year that was a, that was a big deal. Um, bragging on you a little bit, but you, you gave a talk to people in the industry um, and you said it was just a really cool moment. What did you tell everybody? Yeah, it's, um, it, it was a, amazing award to receive, which is the Gill Speed uh, Award and, you know, the awards for innovation and entrepreneurship within the aerospace supply chain. And uh, it was right after, you know, we're going through, you know, the COVID situation, we're going through, you know, the max uh, downturn. So there was a lot of, um, you know, you know, dire type presentations that were being given. And it was kind of a really sobering moment for, for the industry. And you know, I was asked to to give a few words, uh, you know, uh, when accepting the award. And the only thing that just really popped to my head was that disruption is the stage upon which opportunity is set. And I think we have to recenter around that, that out of disruption comes some of the greatest opportunities that we're going to experience or see. And that opportunity is not going to slap you in the face. Opportunity is going to be hidden in the depths of the challenges and it's your job, you know, to mine those depths, yeah. right? It's, it's each and every one of ours obligations to go really deep in the pain, uh, as leaders and how difficult it may be. 
recognizing that only deep in this pain and frustration are we going to find the best opportunities that are going to transform us and our businesses. Yep. And I truly believe that, you know, having started this business in really 2009, uh, I go back to, you know, the darkest moments of, of the world and recognize that those become uh, the ones in which you appreciate, you know, the, the brilliance that, that can come from uh, those, those challenging times. That's awesome, man. So um, how are, like, are you deemed an essential business and how are you handling uh, situations in like a factory where social distancing needs to happen? We are deemed an essential business uh across across the company we 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 manufacture products for not just commercial transport but also for the military and and keeping our soldiers uh safe and and uh you know in the theaters of war that they're in or in the theaters of protection uh, protecting uh the public is 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 absolutely our obligation relative to how we've we've changed things just from a workforce perspective we're we reorganize some shifts uh, in various locations to ensure that uh, fewer people are in a factory so we, we can do things creatively from an hourly workforce perspective. Obviously, you know, spatial distancing between workstations is appropriate. We're fortunate enough to generally be more than six feet away from, you know, individuals at various workstations. Uh, I've asked that fewer people uh, take participation in management meetings. We do daily gimba walks, for example, you know, as part of our daily management routine. Instead of having, you know, six or seven people on those walks, we'll probably have two or three. And just really, you know, focusing on helping our customers, you know, solve problems uh, for the people that are actually coming into the office and doing office work, uh, whether remotely or um, in, in the office. Cool. I'll end it on... Uh one question how are you as a as a leader communicating to your team throughout all this so uh you have people all across the country um in many states like how how have you communicated to the team throughout all this yeah so um we have a daily uh standing call that uh, we use to communicate uh, the health of our factories the health of our people uh what we're doing uh in you know a place like Los Angeles County or Orange County California versus a place like uh, Pocahontas Arkansas, um, you know making sure that we're on top of state, city, county regulations. Uh, you know just that daily call at, at 10 a.m. that we're having uh, is is crucial. Uh, I'm also you know sending you know emails and different letters uh, around you know to the organization just to make sure that that people understand how policies are changing. Uh, we also communicate through uh, an employee engagement app so people understand uh, and get you know real-time updates on their phone when when something's happening. So I think you know technology is enabling a much you know swifter communication uh, for for these types of situations whereas 10 years ago I think people would have been very confused. Um, so if there is a bright spot around uh, this whole situation, we are finding out just how connected we are. Uh, to 100% of our employees uh, in, in our company. That's incredible. All right, man. Thank you so much for your time as always. Thank you, Chris. It's been great. Have a good one. Thank you. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. 
All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.